Good afternoon. This is John Ream for the mid-November episode of the Nebraska Complement Podcast. Podcast dedicated to discussing workers' compensation and employment law issues. For this episode, there's not much comp here at all. It's going to be strictly employment for this episode. Reason I'm talking about just employment on this ep- employment law in this episode is there was a big Supreme Court case that was argued today. There at least there's oral arguments today. <clears throat> I'm referring to the uh, Comcast case. And the Comcast case involves a gentleman named Byron Allen, who African American, and he is the owner of an entertainment company. Who produces various channels? Uh, I think there's like a Pets Channel, some other things, and he attempted to sell his channels to Comcast Cable, and Comcast didn't take the did, didn't take the channels, and chose channels from a white-owned company that Mr. Allen alleges was. Um, were that they were inferior channels. They weren't as viewed, they weren't as prominent. So <clears throat> why is a what amounts to a commercial dispute in media, why is that an employment law issue? Well, Mr. Allen brought his case under Section 42 United States Code 1981. We're just going to call that Section 1981 for the purpose of this episode. And Section 1981... <clears throat> prohibits uh, the consideration of race in the making of contracts. I mean, this can be commercial contracts between businesses. This also means contracts in employment. So Section 1981 is an employment law law statute. So so anyway, under Section 1981, African Americans can sue their employers for discriminating against them based on their race. Um, But the reason why this case is in front of the Supreme Court is because the judge who heard this case, the federal judge, ruled that Mr. Allen needed to plead that race was a but-for cause of of, of his failure to get the contract with Comcast the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and said Mr. <clears throat> Allen could allege that race was merely a motivating factor here. And then the Supreme Court took it up. And from the news accounts that I've read about the oral argument, the Supreme Court seems to agree. And again, we'll find out when this case comes out. But the Supreme Court seems to agree that... <clears throat> If you allege discrimination under Section 1981, you need to allege and or prove that race was a but-for cause. So why is this a big deal? Um, For example, you know, African-Americans, many other people can bring cases under under, uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And under the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, you only need to show that race is a motivating factor, which is a less stringent factor for employees to to prove or and to plead. So what's the advantage of 
bringing a case under Section 1981. Why is this <clears throat> kind of a big deal? Uh, why is this a big deal? Well, the advantage of bringing a case under 1981 versus uh, bringing a case under Title VII is, one, under Section 1981, you don't need to exhaust administrative remedies, which means you don't, a claim, you know, a plaintiff doesn't have to file a charge with a discrimination agency. They can just go right into court on, a, well, just file in court. They don't have to go to an agency. And, you know, sometimes filing with an agency is, is, is a good thing. They can get, you know, if they're staffed properly, they can, uh, <clears throat> you can get a nice case investigation file pretty promptly free of charge. But if these if these agencies are underfunded, what happens is, is that these charges just kind of sit around and uh, they don't get investigated. So there's a delay there. So there's that. And the other thing about Section 1981, why 81 is a better um, legal, legal avenue than Title VII is under 1981, there's a four-year statute of limitations. So let's say you get fired today, November 13th of uh, 2019. You have until November 19th, of, November 14th of 2023 to bring a case under 1981. Under Title VII, it, it, the, the statute of limitations are confusing. You know, I think it's 180 days if you bring a file federally, 300 if you file with a state agency. Then you you know once you once your the claim gets done with it with an agency you have ninety days for a right to sue so it's confusing and it's also pretty fast too, and I've seen folks that you know they get these right to sue letters and they're looking for a lawyer and they're scrambling to find a lawyer, so but if you have somebody whose whose case would fall under nineteen eighty one you don't have those worries you can just say okay well you can file a section nineteen eighty one claim, and um, but. If 1981 is weakened by the Supreme Court, which, you know, looks like it's going to happen, then those procedural advantages of Section 1981 are going to get canceled out by the weakening of the substance of that law. So anyway, big case today in front of the Supreme Court. And in my next section, I want to talk about um, how this case, the uh, Comcast case, relates to the other big civil rights case, which happened in October, which was the um, the uh, case where the Supreme Court was deciding whether to include sexual orientation and gender identity within Title VII. Try to talk about how these cases fit together and try to understand better just what the Supreme Court might be thinking and what's going to what could happen when these cases get decided sometime later next year so that's this section and um, we'll talk about those other issues in the other section thanks so anyway as i talked about in my earlier segment the comcast decision which involves section 1981 was one of the big was a is a major civil rights case. This term there was also another major civil rights case. I mean, if Comcast is one, then the uh, LGBT Title VII cases are either code number one or, or at least a one A at 
at, at the very least, a very close second. So in that case, which I blogged about and I, I guess, potted about, I had a pretty pessimistic take on them, which and I did wrote, I think I wrote my blog post and gave my podcast before oral arguments in that case. And my prediction was is that the court would not expand Title VII to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And I argued that, look, Title VII is an exception to the employment at will doctrine and by exp- by judicially asking to expand Title VII to include sexual orientation and gender identity, you're asking a court to e- expand a exception to the employment at will doctrine, which is Title VII. And I, from my experience with the you know, other cases that I've blogged about this year, I was pessimistic that a majority of Supreme Court justices would, the current Supreme Court justices would do so. But apparently I was wrong. Uh, Ian Millisher wrote about this in Vox, and uh, but apparently Judge Gorsuch was persuaded, or Justice Gorsuch was persuaded that at least sexual orientation, at least from his questions or by, by his questioning, at least thought that sexual orientation should be covered under Title Seven. So, so that so you have two things going on here. Let's just assume that the court agrees to expand Title Seven to include at least sexual orientation here. So, essentially, we have two things that would would be going on in this in in this Supreme Court term if the court expanded. Title Seven, but made it harder to win a 1981 claim. Essentially, you would be expanding the coverage of civil rights laws. Who gets covered under civil rights laws, or better, which classes get covered by civil rights laws, but narrowing, making it harder to win these cases. So, I guess the question then be then becomes. What is the Supreme Court thinking by doing this? What could possibly explain that? And I'll talk about that next. I first noticed the trend of the Supreme Court expanding the protections of civil rights laws while at the same time making it harder to win those cases expanding the coverage, but at the same time weakening the protections. I saw that trend emerge in 2013. At least I spotted it. It maybe it's probably been going on for longer than that, but I spotted it in 2013 with two cases. In 2013, you had the Windsor case, uh, which was probably the most immediate precursor to the Obergefell case, which legalized same-sex marriage and if Title VII is expanded to include at least sexual orientation, that Windsor case is probably going to be cited. So, so in 2013, you have an expansion of civil rights laws. 
But at the same time, in that same term, I think it was even maybe that same week, the court came out with Nasser versus Southwestern Medical Center. And in Nasser, that case created but for causation. This again, the same but for causation that's being argued in the Comcast case created but for causation under Title VII retaliation cases. So in other words, if you complain about retaliation and your employer takes action against you, fires you, demotes you, whatever, then you have to show that the retaliation isn't just a motivating factor, but a but-for factor. So they um, made it harder to prove retaliation. And the court relies on, it is, at least in, in, in the Nasser case, relied on a distinction between protected status, who you are, you know, discrimination based on race, sex, religion, gender, whatever, and protected activity, what you do, you know, reporting unlawful activity, whether it's a whistleblower, reporting discrimination, whatever. So there's a distinction between protected activity and protected status made by the majority in the uh, Nasser decision in 2013. Now, as the dissent pointed out in Nasser, in a dissent written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I think this will, will come up later in the podcast, in the dissent in, our, in, in Nasser, Judge Justice Bader Ginsburg points out that protected status in activity were distinct, were, were not distinct, were, 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 were kind of made up uh, classifications were arbitrary. So, but in my mind, the distinction between protected status, for example, you know, expanding civil rights laws to include more statuses such as sexual orientation, maybe gender identity, versus that of protected identity or protected activity like retaliation made sense because the one activity that worker that that the business really doesn't like is that the protected activity of union of, of organizing organizing unions because unions fundamentally change the employee employee relationship between one where you're an at will employee to one where you know usually there has to be cause for termination and, and lots of other things. So, I mean, it unionization fundamentally um, fundamentally changes the employee-employer relationship. And in order for unions to form in a workplace, there has to be protected activity. And, you know, it, over the years, that protected activity has you know, those, those cases have been drawn back. For example, a Gorsuch decision, Epic versus the Epic, Epic Systems case, which um, said that employees could be forced to sign arbitration to arbitrate wage and hour claims. The Epic, Epic decision, what, it, what, it, what was going on there is the court was taking a very narrow view of what, of what, of what constitute what's called protected concerted activity. In the Epic case, Gorsuch wrote that 
union protected concerted activity on you know under the National Labor Relations Act was limited to to union activity, formal union activity. So the activity of joining a a, a collective action or a class action case wouldn't necessarily be prohibited. And again, when when courts you know, find against employees in protected activity or retaliation cases, oftentimes the courts narrowly construe what constitutes a protected activity. So when, you know, you see cases in retaliation standards and causation standards and retaliation cases raised, and then you see the um, scope of civil rights laws expand, it's kind of natural to conclude maybe that protected activity status and protected, uh, protected activity and protected status are important distinctions. But after the Comcast argument, and what I think the decision is going to be, I'm not sure if that's a completely meaningful distinction anymore. And I'll talk about that more in my final segment of the pod. So finally, the Comcast decision, uh, the Comcast case, and let's assume that the Comcast case goes against Mr. Mr. Allen and goes in favor of Comcast and but for causation becomes the rule in under section 1981 um in my mind then both retaliation retaliation cases under title 7 and protected status cases activity stand, protected activity cases and protected status these cases are held to but for causation and some of the amicus briefs are briefs a uh, submitted by supporters of of a position that aren't the parties. There's a, seems to be an argument that but for causation should be the default rule for employment laws uh, where where causation isn't laid out. And so I don't know how far that's going to get expanded so far, how far that's going to be expanded. But, but again, now we have a protected status case you know, Title Seven, which which covers you know cover, covers race and color discrimination, and we have but for causation and protected activity cases such as uh, uh, Title Seven and the Nasser case. So, I almost wonder if so if people that supported imposing but for causation in section 1981 cases, I almost wonder if they didn't look at that dissent by Bader Ginsburg, where she argues that protected status and um, protected activity are really the same thing. If they didn't look at that and say, okay, RBG, we'll just make everything but for causation easy. So, so I don't know, I guess, trying to you know take the trying to take the Comcast case and the 
Title VII cases in regard to sexual orientation and gender identity together, it appears to me, it appears to me that in my prediction about expanding Title VII to include sexual orientation or gender identity, I was at least wrong. But in that particular, but in the in the in the big sense, I'm more right than wrong because when 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 courts narrowly construe or narrowly interpret exceptions to the employment at will doctrine either through their coverage or by raising causation standards, they're still honoring the employment at a will doctrine. So, so overall, you know, if, if the Comcast case does create but-for causation in, uh, in Section 1981 standard, in 1981 cases, it's, it's, it's a bad case and it's grim. And it's disturbing that that the Department of Justice argued for but for causation section nineteen eighty one. I mean, I would expect the Chamber of Commerce to do so. Not entirely surprising. But apparently, even the National Association of School Boards joined joined in an amicus brief. And I don't understand that at all. Why a school board would want but for would want to make it harder to prove racial discrimination. So, and, you know, these are, these are grim times judicially. Um, you know, if the uh, Comcast case comes, comes, comes down for Comcast, is it going to be as bad as other post reconstruction era cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, the civil rights cases, Hans versus Louisiana. Well, not quite, because again, you still have Title Seven, but it's still going to be uh, a bad decision. And I again, I think part of the reason that we're that if um, Comcast goes against the plaintiff, which it sounds like it will, part of the reason that it's going to go that way is because of the power of the employment at will doctrine or the power of employers to fire employees for any reason they want with very limited legal recourse for the employee. And really the only thing that's going to stop it is I am pretty much a full-scale political realignment in favor of workers' rights. I mean, you're going to need a couple of landslide elections for progressives that are committed to workplace rights in order to turn things around. So anyway, on that uplifting note, I think I'll call it a pod for now. Thanks for listening.